This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I'm the king of the world! There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And Rebecca Ford. Hi. We are here in the final week of Emmy voting, but as ever, when it comes to August, there are just all these little bits of fall film news to talk about. So we will loop back to the Emmys eventually, and you've been hearing our interviews of so many great contenders like this week's Hoyan and Christina Ricci. There's also going to be Bones and All, which you'll hear us talking about later with Chris Murphy and Hilary Buses for our book club episode. Uh, it's premiering at Venice and will also be in New York. Um but first, fall festivals, Oscar qualifiers, Oscar apologies. Uh, there's a lot to get into. Um, so I wanted to start with the newest news as we record this, which is that many more titles are being added to the New York Film Festival. The biggest new title is, she said, the adaptation of a Jodi Cantor and Megan Toohey's book, which you heard us talk about last week. Um, Richard, anything else stand out for you on that lineup since you'll be our man on the ground at the New York Film Festival? I mean, that's definitely a big one because we'd sort of been wondering where that was going to land. But I think that that being a very New York story, it makes sense at that festival. You know, um, I think it probably would have played well at Telluride in Toronto, certainly. But that's, you know, that's a big one. And I think we already talked about the inspection. But like that one, I just feel like it keeps kind of um, it's going to be at Toronto, but it, it's also going to be one of the centerpiece kind of screenings at New York. And um, that's a, a movie that I wasn't really aware of until very recently with Jeremy Pope and Gabrielle Union. Um, so it's shaping up to be a really good festival. And then you'll also have all the can replay stuff, some of which I'll be watching for the first time because, you know, you can't see everything there. They also added Women Talking, which we talked about already being in Toronto, and Bones and All, which is at Venice. David or Rebecca, does anything surprise you about what is being added to the New York Film Festival lineup? It's a really solid selection. It feels like there's just so many movies that we'll be seeing all within a month of each other. It feels really, I agree, really strong. I feel like even in these little announcements, it makes me consider films to be, you know, more of a, a threat to Oscar season if they pop up in this. Like I think, you know, Bones and All, I hadn't been paying that much attention to, but obviously it getting added here. And and I think we're all very hot on She Said and, and excited to see that one and curious about it. So it definitely, I feel like even these little announcements just make make the heat rise on a few of these films. Yeah, I think a New York premiere can be really smart because, as we've been talking about a lot, uh, Toronto and that whole early September corridor is looking really crowded. And she said feels like a big movie destined to provoke conversation, um, as does Till, which is also world premiering here. And that when that announcement came, I know we were all pretty surprised that this is where it was landing. Um, and I think it signals a certain confidence in it being more of an artistic, interesting movie than maybe we thought it would be, um, just based on how Oscar-bound biopics tend to go. So that those are the two that I'm really looking at. I think those are the two big premieres that New York got. And it does feel like between those and all of the, you know, Toronto, Telluride, Venice premieres that are stopping over in New York, that this is actually going to be a pretty pivotal award season stopping ground this year. Two movies that I have my eye on, I mentioned can replays. Um, one is Corsage, the Marie Kreutzer film that stars Vicky Creeps, um, that I I liked at Cannes, and, but it kind of went a little under the radar there. But it's going to show up at these fall festivals, and I think there is a chance, if people like it enough, that Vicky Creeps could be in the Best Actress conversation, because she is like pretty much in every scene of that movie, and it's akin to her Phantom Thread role, but not quite. The same. I mean, it's different, so it's just another facet of, of her sort of this 
newish talent to arrive on the international scene. And then the other one is Triangle of Sadness, because the trailer for that came out. People on Twitter were like all about it. Um, mm-hmm. because they focus a lot on the fun, funny stuff. And people, um, especially from the Philippines, were like, oh my God, it's Dolly De Leon, who I had mentioned back in May as someone, a huge breakout from that movie. And I think the New York Film Festival will be a really pivotal place for that movie um, in terms of the press attention and the sort of prestige of it. I don't think it'll get lost at Toronto, but it won't get as much of a focus because I think it's only going to, it'll play probably that like Thursday can catch up day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that, if they play their cards right, it's a Palm d'Or winner. I think Triangle of Sadness is a movie that we absolutely should keep in mind for like big, big, like nominations. Um, and it, it's, it's Neon, right? Who yeah. uh, who won Best Picture for Parasite, so yeah. they know how to do that uh, can to Oscars path. Yeah, and it's a movie about like rich people tearing each other apart and vomiting everywhere. And I think that like that plays a little ironically at something as glitzy as the New York Film Festival, maybe, but like. So that's true of Cannes as well, you know, and and people were really on its wavelength there, obviously. So I don't know. I think just judging from the reaction to that trailer online, which I know is just sort of an echo chamber sometimes, but um, I, I didn't realize quite how much that movie would be like on people's radar in a way that it is. Yeah, I think we're doing something that it's it's hard not to do, but every year we kind of see all these movies at Cannes and then we sleep on them for a while. And then all of a sudden in November, it's like, oh, wow, everyone really loves Drive My Car. Like, it, it's hard to gauge that kind of momentum. But I think you're absolutely right, Richard, that's like one of these titles or like Decision to Leave, the Park Chan-wook movie, mm-hmm. like those are certainly not out of the race right now. No. Yeah, I do think we need to keep an eye on Decision to Leave because it is popping up at all these festivals. I think it's going to New York too, right? And then so... It does feel like it could really gain some momentum. I saw it in Cannes and, and really loved it. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a drive my car sort of phenomenon, but uh, it does feel like another one we should pay attention to. Armageddon Time too. I mean, that movie had a very mm-hmm. mixed reception at Cannes. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was really interesting and, and worth debating and seeing and talking about and all that, you know, um, and that, you know, James Gray, the filmmaker is a very New York filmmaker. And this is his return to New York after some time in space and the Amazon um, and it's at New York Film Festival also. Yeah, right? sorry. I'm talking, I'm, yeah, I'm specifically referring to it being at New York Film Festival um, is that I think that's kind of make or break for it. Like if it doesn't work there, if it gets as mixed a response as it did at Cannes, then I think that movie's chances for anything is, are, are pretty significantly dimmed. Mm. We've heard that cut has been updated um, mm. fairly significantly for um, from what it was at Cannes. So. It'll be interesting to see uh, if that changes the reception at all, too. Um, well, let's jump to to TIFF, uh, which is uh, also on the horizon, even sooner than New York Film Festival. Um, they have these tribute awards that kind of happen throughout the festival. And I feel like as in recent years, they've become more and more prominent because they have this really uh, uncanny Oscar predicting power. Like last year, they gave this big award to Jessica Chastain, back when only Richard Lawson thought that she might win for Eyes of Tammy Faye. I um, didn't really think that. I wrote something about how good she was, but you know, don't, don't give I me that give credit. credit. I want to give you credit. You and the good people of Toronto. Um, so so Sam Mendes has been announced as a, uh, I think the recipient of like the Roger Ebert Award, uh, the Ebert Director Award. Yeah. Uh, and so he'll be there with Empire of Light, uh, which we have talked about as seems very up the Oscar alley. And I mostly just find it interesting because, um, you know, American Beauty started its Oscar run there in 1999. Um, but then with 1917, his last movie, it was like one of those infamous, like late breaking, like we're going to swoop it and win Best Picture efforts. And it didn't work. So has Sam Mendes learned the, the festival slog is what he has to do to make it all the way? From from what I remember of 1917, it was it was shot. It started shooting like that April, and so it yeah, really had. Yeah. There was no ability for it to do any kind of festival run. Um, so maybe he misses it. Um, <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it's going to Telluride based on the the language of its uh, TIFF premiere uh, <laughs> description. But um, yeah, I think clearly TIFF has no has a really good track record of tipping strong contenders. It is among the most mysterious movies premiering uh, in September, just because the logline is extremely vague and it's not based uh, on anything. It's not based, yeah. It's not based on anything. It's got an interesting mix of you know heavy hitting heavy hitters in the cast, like Olivia Coleman and Colin Firth, and Michael Ward is playing a pivotal role in that and is being uh, highlighted as a potential breakout. Uh, So it's it's. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about it, but clearly this is a, a vote of confidence from Toronto. It being about the movies, I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting, David, you said the thing about 1917 starting filming in April. That was not a technically complex movie, so I don't know why he couldn't have just gotten it done 
for September. It was one take. It took like five days. <laughs> right, exactly. That, <laughs> you're done by late April at the latest. Yeah. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Ferrian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So jumping ahead to the Oscars themselves, um, you know, the Academy Museum and the Oscars, they're doing stuff all year round, especially with the the museum now open. The programming is really fascinating. But I was so struck by this release that uh, came out yesterday in which uh, Sachin Littlefeather, who accepted Marlon Brando's, or I guess didn't accept Marlon Brando's uh, Oscar for the Godfather. Yes. Um, that was kind of the point of the speech. Um, received a apology from the Academy and is also going to be holding a, a night of conversation, reflection, healing, and celebration at the Academy Museum in September. Um, and the Hollywood Reporter, uh, your former uh, home base, Rebecca, had kind of this interview with her just about the entire experience. And that was just, you know, we, we've known for a long time, and I think anyone who goes to the Academy Museum knows that a lot of the current effort of the Academy is to reckon with the past and the uglier parts of the past. Um, but I just kind of never thought I would see this specifically happen. Um, and Rebecca, I think we were talking about it. You seemed as struck by this as I was. Yeah, I, I, I'm so curious about the timing. Um, I mean, I'm so glad that this happened and, and obviously that there's going to be this event sort of giving her the credit she deserves for what was a really brave action and that affected her life so deeply um, Mm -hmm. by sort of the hate she received after that. But I'm like, why now? I mean, it's funny because people like us, you know, we see this video pop up every, I feel like every few months because it just was such a shocking moment. Um, I think it's at the Academy Museum. I think it's playing in that like reel of of acceptance speeches that they have. Yeah, well, really, that's so interesting because... I just wonder when the conversation came up that was like, we need to make this right. And and the apologies from David Rubin, who is the outgoing president. So, you know, this was obviously in the works. I think it was sent to her in June. So this was Mm -hmm. in the works for a while. I thought maybe this was something with the new leadership. But, you know, it's obviously been something they've been thinking about doing for a while. Um, And so it's a really interesting and I think exciting decision that they've made. And just reading that that piece, uh, that interview with her, like, and, and the way the article briefly delineates the immediate response to her speech at those Oscars, and like John Wayne having to be restrained from rushing the stage to do God knows what, you know, uh, and people doing all manner of like heckling and all that stuff. It's just like that wasn't that long ago, you know. And we have certainly had plenty of actors who have given activist speeches on that podium and have not had the same treatment, mostly because they're white, you know, Mm -hmm. or the times have changed, hopefully at least a little bit. Um, So, you know, it's a I think that that incident often gets talked about like soy bomb, you know, the the guy who danced while Bob Dylan played at the Grammys or something like. But it was not some little Oscar history oddity. It was something more significant than that, that. I think, yeah, deserves this kind of reflection, not just a sort of like kitschy kind of novelty. Remember when that happened kind of thing. Yeah. If you haven't watched that speech or haven't watched it recently, I really recommend it because she's so like sturdy and polite. And it's not like she's like coming up to like, you know, it's it's not a protest moment. It is a like respectful appearance on a stage to try to get people's attention. And she's met with those heckles and it feels so out of proportion to what she's bringing to the stage. So watch that speech if you haven't. 
Okay, two more bits of Oscar news, uh, both about uh, people qualifying for Oscars that maybe we thought were out of the game. Um, the Hollywood Reporter had a whole, like, I guess an exclusive that uh, Taylor Swift's short film, All Too Well, which premiered in theaters last fall. Um, and I, I I feel like we talked about it at the time because it premiered in October and the qualifying period for short films uh, is different than it is for features. It runs October to the end of September. Um, so she's going to qualify for the uh, Best Short Film Oscar. Um, and according to Scott Feinberg at The Hollywood Reporter, there's a top consulting firm working on the campaign. I'm trying to figure out who it is. <laughs> I don't know if I need to write, to write them out if they are. But um, the thing that I want to say is that Taylor Swift has been eligible for multiple Oscars for songs and for the documentary for the documentary. Americana and keeps not getting nominated. So I would say don't get your hopes up too much. I, I like All Too Well a lot, but I feel like her Oscar track record is sketchy at this point. What if she was a double nominee this year? <laughs> oh, for, for, um, for that and the Crawdad song. For the Crawdad song. song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that Crawdad song any good? I listened to it one yeah. time and I've, it's exited my brain. It's fine. But that movie was like a little hit, you know? Yeah. Um, the All Too Well. Did she direct the All Too Well? Yes. She did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Okay. With Sadie Sink. Mm-hmm. And um, a guy. One Dylan of those, O'Brien. Yeah, one right. of those young guys. That guy. <laughs> that would be fascinating. I mean, look, Christine Lottie has one of those Oscars. You know, we I had know. her on the podcast to talk we about sure that. We sure did. Um, uh, there are other celebrities who have those, too. Martin McDonough. Well, Kobe Bryant, ha- Kobe Bryant yeah. got the doc one. Yeah, yeah. Riz Ahmed in this category. Yeah. Yes. Martin McDonough actually won yeah. before he made a feature. Devil Wears Prada director David Frankel. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's a long history of interesting... Live action short, right? Yeah, Live yeah. Short. Like yeah. Of, of winners there, so that that's a really good way to get that egot. You know, like a really weird, mm-hmm. um, not a, not a frequent one, but it does happen. Uh, and then the other person who's entering into the race, um, which we talked about at length, uh, is Emma Thompson in Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Um, it was released exclusively on Hulu by Searchlight, but released in theaters worldwide. Um, and it seems to me that more or less because of the complications of a Sundance acquisition during the peak of Omicron, when you know movie theaters were such a question mark, uh, it's going to qualify for Oscar consideration after all. I'm thrilled about this. I think she's great in the movie, as we talked about. But I am kind of puzzled by just the 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 shakiness of the rules. Am I being a stickler or is this kind of weird? I think it. a lot of people <laughs> were scratching their heads over, <laughs> you know, the searchlight appealed the decision. Um, they, of course, also acquired um, Fresh out of Sundance, which then competed for the TV movie Emmy and was not ultimately nominated. In terms of distribution here in the U.S., the releases were exactly the same. <laughs> so I don't really see what the difference is. I, I think they cited you know, going into theaters internationally, um, which to my mind wouldn't impact an Academy decision on which votes (laughs) within the United States. Uh, And the qualifying run is determined by exhibitions within the United States. But Emma Thompson is absolutely amazing in this movie. And it has been too long since we've had an Emma Thompson Oscar campaign. And I have to think if Searchlight went to this trouble to really reverse the Academy's decision and, mm-hmm. and challenge what the policy was that Emma Thompson's going to be out there, you know, actually campaigning, which I think is kind of exciting because she's delightful and funny and has a lot to, t- always has a lot to say. And this is a, a really worthy role for her to go for it. Yeah, it was saving Mr. Banks, I guess, that she was on the trail for in 2013, 14 or so. And she gave the best speeches. Um, and that movie was fine. Um, but she was just such a wonderful presence to have out there. So I'm with you, David, that anything that gets her on the circuit is a bonus. But do we think that, and Rebecca and David, you would know better than I would about this, but like, do you think there's a chance it would get some sort of like reconsider, like release in theaters or like, would they go to that length to do it? Because I, you know, the movie got good reviews and people are aware of it, but it's now just kind of languishing on Hulu. And I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it. Like, how do you think they would go about getting it back in people's heads? Is it just getting Emma Thompson out there? I kind of think it is. I mean, if you think about Coda, I remember when you know it, it, Apple released it in August uh, on the streamer. It, it just didn't feel like it, it landed in any sort of way, but it was the cast and Sean Hader hitting every single event and really winning the entire town over that pushed that movie to the front of the race. And um, I think you know this movie is a very, very intimate small scale two-hander and she is the face of it. She is, um, you know, both actors are are terrific, but she is by far the more known one. And so I I think she's really the selling point. If they get it into theaters, I mean, I think that's icing on the cake, but 
she would have to be the one to to push herself, I think. And if Dar- yeah, if Daryl McCormick wants to hire me as any kind of consultant or anything, I'm available. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Yeah, I think we can expect to see sort of those cocktail reception screening things, you know, that we see every season. Um with a lot of Emma Thompson available. But I, I I just wonder if this, you know, if there are conversations going on at Netflix or other streamers yeah. about what they should be doing now. Because, you know, if you look at this timing, this movie came out and went to streaming in June and the rules were changed back to require theatrical release in May. So that means anything that played on streaming before June, you know, could be appealed if if the streamer wanted to do it. I mean, it does, yeah. I, th- I think, open sort of an interesting can of worms and and maybe only for this year because, you know, this is all tied to the COVID theatrical issues. But I don't know. It's, I mean, I, I definitely agree that this performance in film deserves to be in the conversation, but what does it mean? What are the other streamers thinking about it right now? Well, and even Hulu, they're going to have Fire Island, which I think is just going to be a TV movie competitor uh, at next year's Emmys. Um, yeah, and arguably, if that could have been part of the at least the Globes, you know, we would yeah, have had a right? chance to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, I guess if it's not hard enough to know what's on Hulu or Disney Plus or in theaters, like <laughs> this just adds a whole other element to it. Yeah. Oh, Rebecca, you brought up the Globes, um, which I guess they're on your mind because yeah. you uh, <laughs> always on my a, mind. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote about them for us last week. Um, I mean, it was kind of a story about what's not happening yet because there had been a report that um, NBC had signed a deal with them to bring the Golden Globes back to television early next year. And what you learned in your reporting is that that's not quite true, but probably will be true soon. And um, but that doesn't mean that the drama about the Globes is over in Hollywood yet, right? Yeah, it's. Um and most people agree that this deal is going to make and the Globes will be back on television. Um, but what I found so interesting is sort of the way the publicists of the town have been divided into factions. Um, you know, there's a there's a group that's sort of working with the HFPA and has come around to the idea of like, let's give them a chance. They've done a lot of changes. You know, I was sent this six page memo um, of all the changes that the HFPA has has sort of listed that they've done in the past year. And, you know, it can be argued how many of those are are deep, genuine change and how many of those are uh, sort of window dressing, which is exactly the argument that the other publicist faction is making about they just don't feel like a lot of this is is real change. And they don't feel like they're it's being communicated what is going to happen moving forward. Like, yes, they added more members to the group, but how many are they going to add in the next year and the next year? Um, and there's no sort of, you know, outline for where they go from here if they are back in, in Hollywood's good graces, because I think everyone want, hopes that the change continues and this group just starts to get uh, more diverse and, and better in the next few years um, as well. So I, I'm curious what this means for talent, obviously, you know, you need to have talent show up to this uh, event. And I think a lot of people will, but I, I do wonder if there will be some big names that aren't um, at the event or doing the press conferences and things like that. Like if I were to place my bet, I would think that the Golden Globes will happen. There will be some notable absences. Like in, in your piece, Rebecca, you pointed out Tom Cruise, who returned his three Golden Globes. Like if he gets nominated for Maverick, he probably won't show up. But it seems like they could, there's enough of a critical mass to make it pretty normal if it comes back. When it comes, yeah, I I feel like there's a lot of people, especially the studios, that just want to make it feel normal again. So I do think Hollywood can put on a a show and fake it that that it's gonna (laughs) uh, it's gonna be back this year or early next year. So we do want to note before we head over to Book Club that it is the week of Emmy voting. If you're an Emmy voter, get those ballots in. Um, And David, you had something interesting to throw out about Better Call Saul, which is nominated this year, but also just aired its final episode this week. Um, And I think especially with um, Emmy's round two voting, like it's hard to move the needle because a lot of these shows are done and there's not like as many events as there are for the Oscars. But you seem to think that Better Call Saul has really um, edged uh, edged ahead in a way. Yeah, I I think this is a show that... Emmy voters have always liked enough to nominate, but have never given it a single win in its now six seasons. It's been nominated for 46 Emmys uh, without a single win. And look, I think this was like one of the most cynical genius release strategies I've seen (laughs) from an Emmy point of view for a TV show, because the final season was split into two halves as Breaking Bad's was and many other shows have been. But these last episodes truly aired week to week 
in the absolute lead up to voting week. The finale aired on the day, you know, in the week that voting started. And, you know, what what voter is going to think that they're not voting for these episodes, which, believe it or not, are not eligible. They're actually <laughs> voting for episodes. These episodes will be eligible a full year from now. But this this entire release strategy is about knowing that this is their their last stand to to win something big. Um, they were able to cobble together enough big nominations. Bob Odenkirk back in the Best Actor race. Ray Seahorn finally a supporting actress nominee. It's also in for Best Series, Writing, and a few other categories. That it feels to me that if you're gauging momentum, uh, and this final season certainly had a ton of momentum, it, w- it was met with a ton of love when it aired on Monday night, uh, the series finale, that it, it it's competitive in a few categories that we wouldn't have thought it would be a few months ago, just because of how much it's going to be at the f- forefront of voters' minds compared to a lot of these other shows that aired months, if not a year ago. Yeah, it's very smart. I mean, when you think about something like Squid Game, it feels like it was on 17 years right. ago. So it's a, definitely a smart strategy or luck if it wasn't a strategy. <laughs> I, I think Squid Game is a really good example because... You know, if you look at the supporting actress race, Hoyan seemed like the obvious challenger to Julia Garner uh, after winning the SAG Award. Um, but doesn't Ray Seahorn feel like the more exciting choice for a lot of voters? She may be on her first nomination. They may have been very slow to warm to her. But this final season was so much about how great she is and just giving her that kind of showcase. And I think we know a lot of Television Academy voters watch the show. Um, so I really believe she can pull it off. I mean, I think the question had been whether they would wait until next season um, because, you know, they'll have all of the next Emmy season around to do it. But it kind of feels like now's the moment, right? I don't think any voter is thinking that. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I would bet that a lot don't even know, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think they think in those terms. It's It's all been the final season. There wasn't that much of a gap like there has been with other season splits. Um, I think that it is widely considered to be how you know just how big the final season embrace will be but i think that's what that's how people will be voting is thinking this is the final stand yeah and next year will be incredibly difficult for them because it will feel like the show was on 17 years ago so right yep uh well we'll talk more about the emmys we're going to have obviously some predictions uh leading up to the ceremony that is in um early september uh as we squeeze it in amongst all the festival news it really is just so much happening all at once The Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, we're back now for another installment of our August Book Club. Um, Katie and I are joined by our wonderful VF colleagues, Chris Murphy and Hilary Buses. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Ready to uh, dig in? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we're talking about Bones and All, which will soon be a film directed by Luca Guadagnino, starring Taylor Russell and Timothy Chalamet, and world premiering at the Venice Film Festival. Um, had any of you heard of this book or read this book before the movie was announced? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> to say that in unison. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a while since I've been kind of plugged into the YA book sphere. Um, so yes, I had not heard of this book. In fact, when I started reading it so that we could have this conversation, I forgot what the movie was. I knew that there was a Timothy Chalamet cannibalism movie, but then I started reading the book and didn't make the connection that this was that. <laughs> okay. And then the very <laughs> first page, a baby eats her babysitter. And I was like, wait a minute, what? What's going on here? <laughs> 
so yeah, this is a YA book um, by Camille DeAngelis that I think was, it was certainly well-reviewed and probably sold well enough, obviously, to get the attention of, um, you know, filmmakers. And something that, you know, as someone, I you know, this was inevitable. You all knew this was coming. As someone who has written a YA book, <laughs> um, yes. what I admired about, especially the kind of opening stretches when we're jumping forward and back, backward in time, um, kind of everything up to when she meets Lee, the, the character that's going to be played by Timothy Chalamet. The lead, the lead character's name is uh, Marin, by the way. Um, is that it's it's kind of lyrically written and it's dark and it's creepy and it's sad. The heroine is doing some really bad stuff and yet we're still with her. And that to me felt like I, I know how hard it is to main, to stay within the bounds of YA. You know, that's it's kind of the, those borders are not necessarily like written down somewhere, but editors seem to know like oh, maybe rein that back in or you hmm. know do this instead. And this book, I think, for a good bulk of it. Um, really exists at the very limit of those boundaries, which I really appreciate in YA, because I think that kids or even adults who like YA, they don't have to be sort of pandered to. And this book, I don't think does until we kind of get into the more boy girl stuff um, with the, the Lee character. Yeah, someone who doesn't really know that much about YA and, like, I'm not that clear on the limits of it. Like, I, I was struck by kind of the frankness of a lot of those parts. Like, it's not a super violent book, and we might be able to get into how violent we think the movie might be. But it did, like, it doesn't feel like this is going to be a YA movie at all. Like, it, that doesn't seem to be the vibe we're going for. So I'm interested in how, like, a screen version might transform it and push up against some of those limits you're talking about. Although, I don't know. It does seem like the movie, at least from the brief glimpses of it, that... uh have been available so far. Um, I think there's just a teaser trailer right now. Seems like it's going to be a lot more romance focused than the book was. Like I was mm -hmm. expecting romance, I guess because of the genre and I guess because I knew that the movie was happening. Um, but it's not a very romantic book. It's really more about Marin and her, you know, coming of age. Yeah, I felt that it was a kind of like listless and sort of like wandery and meandery in a way that I didn't, I don't really uh, associate with YA. And when I think about YA books that turn into movies, I immediately go like Twilight <laughs> or Hunger Games. <laughs> um, and this was very much not that. And yet I could still see how I was like more like, oh, this is more like Cormac McCarthy's The Road. They're just like wandering from town to town. So I, yeah, I also didn't get like intense YA um, like book to screen adaptation from Certainly the, it's not very reading plot heavy, it. I think is what yeah, you mean, right? Not yeah. much happens. <laughs> If anyone who's watched Luca Guadagnino's We Are Who We Are, like that kind of woozy coming of age existing on the realm of danger, like that's familiar to Guadagnino at least. So I think yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I think the power of the romance, it does make sense as something to pull out in the movie, especially because and I, I don't want to be too harsh on the book and I'm interested in what you guys all think but the entire idea is like she's going to go on a quest and find her father and you're like well that's probably not going to work out the way you think <laughs> yeah. and then she meets this guy Sully and um, and he's like a weird rough looking character I think he's going to be played by Mark Rylance in the movie yeah. which I'm very puzzled by mm. and um, Lee is like that guy's no good she's like no he's fine you're like mm, I think that guy might not be any good <laughs> um, and like those those aren't really strong uh things to hang up a, a movie plot on. So leaning into the romance makes sense both for um, the story and for what Guadagnino does well, I think. Yeah, in YA, there was a kind of movement in the past few years, one that I really only became aware of when I read Goodreads of my book, where there is, you know, romance or almost some romance, I guess, with a pair of characters, is that there has been a push away from that of like, well, if there's a boy in a movie, in a, a story and a girl in a story, they inevitably have to get together. And I think they've been trying to kind of change that that pattern a bit. And so I think that's a bit of what's happening in this book. But I could understand why someone like Luca Guadagnino, who is so into swoons and, you know, first roars of love and lust and feeling and all that, as exhibited in Call Me By Your Name and in what We Are Who We Are in particular, although I would argue that, like, you know, I Am Love kind of conjures up some of the similar feeling. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. I think it's also interesting that David Kajganich, who um, worked with Guadagnino on Suspiria and A Bigger Splash, did the a screenplay for this book. Um, and so whatever darkness he brought to those things, like maybe he'll kind of amp up what's already in DeAngelis' book. Um, so I'm really curious. I This is super anecdotal, but uh, I, a friend of a friend 
uh, well, sorry, Camille D'Angelo is a friend of a friend. I just found ooh, this out ooh. recently. Okay, you have to disclose <laughs> <And> that. <laughs> this, I literally found this out like three days ago. Um, and she apparently is very happy with the adaptation. Oh, so that's that's it. And so I, I wonder if that's, oh, it's very faithful, or if I think it's more going to be, it was a really interesting reimagining of the tone that the book is going for, if not the exact plotting, because I've done some little Googling, and it does seem like there are rumors out there, mostly from Chalamet stands, that they have <laughs> amped up the romance, and they've well, also significantly changed We can definitely trust changed, those changed people changed. to know <laughs> yeah. what's right. actually happening. And one, one of the little posts read, and for Chalamet fans also, I believe he is shirtless many times. <laughs> Well, you got to take off your shirt before you eat somebody or else you're just going to be doing laundry all your life. That was a big plot point in the being messy after eating. It was a big plot point in the book. I'm going to say this and I don't want to incite the ire of a bunch of Chalamet stands, but I don't know if he would be my first casting choice for Lee in terms of like what I pictured when I was mostly listening to the book. I listened to it on audiobook. Um, he seems like a little uh, soft and a little, I, I don't know. I was thinking of somebody more rugged, uh, you know, for the part. I don't know. Does anybody yeah. else Name think- names, Chris. Who are you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> like a young Taylor Kitsch from FNL. Oh, Friday Night I Life. see. Like yeah, someone you could imagine vibe. driving a pickup truck. Yes, exactly. That is okay. not what I get from little Timmy. So, <laughs> little Manhattan boy Timmy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> New York lonely boy. Yeah. Exactly. And then also after seeing Don't Look Up, I was like, he sort of did this and it did not work for me, you know, with the mullet and the a little bit more yeah. rugged. So I'm interested to see if he can pull it off. I believe in him, but he would not have been my first choice, I would say. Well, I think that touches on something interesting and not necessarily in the positive about the book, which is that like, this is this road trip across America as these two teen cannibals, you know, just sort of try to figure out what to do with themselves. Well, there's a mission to sort of find her father. Um, there, so we, we kind of crisscross around the middle of the country. We meet lots of local color, lots of, you know, and I think that they Angeles also just keep meeting cannibals. There are <laughs> they so keep many cannibals, more cannibals. After years <laughs> of having met none. Yeah. What is it, the um, Meiter-Meinhof complex? Like, when you start seeing right. it, it's everywhere? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the Bader-Meinhof complex, but I think in yeah. their case, it's the Biter-Meinhof. Yeah. Oh, boy. That's good. Um, Pirate. I'm so sorry. Just, no, 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 no. <laughs> that was a good, that, that was a worthy, um, to get to that pun, I think, was important. Um, but I, I think that she has a little trouble rendering class differences and people and local dialect and... You know, there's a lot of sort of disgusted language about the squalor of certain people's lives and cigarette packs and food wrappers. And it's a bit like snooty mm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's kind of interesting that in the adaptation, like in the Timmy casting, like it kind of also fails what I think that character's trying to be, which is, like you said, Chris, a little bit rough around the edges, a little more rugged. Um, I mean, he's also described as having sandy blonde hair, but there are two <laughs> hilarious bits where um, Marin, our, our protagonist, it, it kind of like lustily almost describes Lee changing a tire and then she remarks at the fact that he knows how to drive stick, which is like, yes, those two things are hot, but like it, from a very sort of like delicate, like cloistered perspective, I guess. Um, so I'm, I'm just kind of curious how like Chalamet will do that energy or they're just kind of reinterpreting the character. I mean, in the little teaser, he has like pink hair. So he's like kind of yeah. a different style than, than what is described in the book. Mm. Yeah, it, it, like the power of a central romance to this, like, because in the book, like, Lee is there, but he's not in huge chunks in the movie. And, like, kind of the whole concept of Marin's cannibalism is that, like, when someone is attracted to her or someone wants something from her, she eats them. Like, she, like, they can't touch each other, basically. And I don't know if a movie version is going to do that, too. Like, I think you want, a, like, the idea of a romance between people who, like, can't be near each other is really powerful, but that's not what the book is doing. But I think that's what I would want more of from a movie, both because Timmy's in it and because, like, I think that is more effective a storytelling than, like, I want to go find my dad and see if he was a cannibal. And then, you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't turn out. I mean, out, that is, that is there. Twilight. Like, yeah. if that's this true, is, that's like, true. Luca Guadagnino's Twilight, then that would make a lot of sense. And I'm very curious about what that movie looks like. And I, I wonder also um, if part of the reason that the book doesn't, you know, is so focused on Marin and her journey and the romance is secondary and, you know, the 
the road trip parts are kind of hazily rendered and all of that. I wonder if part of that is because it's a book with a mission, which is something that I didn't realize until I finished uh, reading it. Um, but Camille D'Angelis is a vegan educator um, mm. and lifestyle coach, uh, which is Ooh. amazing and hilarious. Um, wow. I just I read a, I read an interview that she gave um, or she did a podcast and I read the transcript of it. Um, and she says the point of this book is that flesh is not food. A lot of people eat it. It's what we've been indoctrinated to believe is food. After thousands of years, we've been eating it. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't make it ethical. And it's okay, just like, I miss that. like I totally, yeah, also went over my head. I just That's, thought that it was like a supernatural book. Yep. Same. I didn't realize that I was supposed to come away from this thinking that like, maybe I should not eat burgers because it's the same <laughs> as, as eating humans human. <laughs> as gobbling them up and leaving nothing but a plastic bag of their personal effects. Yeah. Okay. I honestly took a whole completely different takeaway. I'm sorry to Camille, but I was like, oh, it's kind of like sort of brave and so wonderful that we have this like female protagonist who has this like deep flaw, but you know, we still, you know, we go on this journey with her and we're not supposed to, you know, stigmatize her or hate her. It was sort of, I sort of took the, maybe the opposite, not that I was like, I'm going to go eat a burger, but I was like, oh, this person has clearly something that they're struggling with, you know, a disorder, you know, a cannibalism, if you will. Um, And yet like we go on this journey, you know, she's a human, she's got feelings and, you know, dreams and wants to meet her dad and wants to fall in love. And uh, her plight is something that I like connected with. So I actually took the exact opposite of what Camille (laughs) wanted us to take away. It's just a different, I mean, I I think that like, there's clearly something at work here where it's like, we're, you know, through Marin, like predatory narratives are being sort of flipped and reclaimed in a way like Jennifer's body style or that movie Teeth. Where, you know, oh, actually, it's the it's the the boys who should be scared in these intimate situations. And I don't know if that like thematic point really gets anywhere productive at the end. You know, I don't want to spoil anything if people listening Mm -hmm. haven't finished the book, but like it kind of just like makes its point kind of obviously and then ends. Yeah, it does feel like um, a point that's been made a lot um, in a lot of different stories at this point. Yeah. So I would be curious if like how much of that thematic stuff, I mean, veganism or uh, a certain look at, you know, at, at, at gender roles and things like that, like if Guadagnino um, will tease that out more or kind of mute it under, you know, a sort of romantic, swoony kind of road trip thing. My hunch would be the latter, but I don't, I haven't seen the movie yet, so I don't know, but um it, 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 I think this could be an example of like what all the books we're talking about on this series. I feel like this could be the most different movie from the source material. Mm-hmm. And I kind yeah, of hope it is. Until we get to White Noise way. next week at, at least. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, I, I guess speaking with casting, because I was really trying to sort of picture who would be what, I'm really excited for Taylor Russell as Marin. I think she was wonderful in Waves, and she's like a really promising sort of, you know, youthful actor who um, I, once I, you know, looked it up after I'd finished the book to see who was who was playing who, I was like, oh, that's a really interesting choice for this character, not like, not to, again, um, uh, disparage like the CW, but I could see this going in a big, like a very like CW, you know, Riverdale way. And I think, um, <laughs> which I have there been cannibals on Riverdale? That seems I, possible. I have to assume there have after <laughs> after all this time. But I do think as you know, Taylor, like as she's very grounded, really, really great actor. So I'm I'm excited. I think it'll be fun to see her and Timmy play off each other. And I might give it like a you know a strong grounding um, in reality, which will be nice. The pairing of them definitely feel more like art house, yeah, than this could have been. Right. Yes, and and I think because waves like was heralded somewhat loudly at the fall festivals, and then sort of didn't do anything when it came out. You know, it was supposed to be Taylor Russell's big, like you know, mm-hmm. big season, and it kind of didn't turn into that. But she clearly was a standout from that film. Um, this maybe could like okay, here we go. Now she's the lead of this big, you know, Venice premiering Guadagnino movie. Like that's exciting. Um, obviously. This is a smart play because it's going to appeal to art house people, but also teenagers and art house teenagers and the teenager inside of art house adults. And, you know, like, <laughs> I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot oh, of those uh, are the four quadrants, I think. Exactly. <laughs> I right. think like, we like represent the new all of four them quadrants um, <laughs> will be satisfied, hopefully, by everything that this story entails. What do we think about Mark Rylance as Sully? It's like a fun inversion of his BFG character. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brought up in the book. It's brought it's brought up in the book. The BFG is the only giant who doesn't eat people. It's true. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think he, I think he'll be good. I mean, you know, I, it's yet another opportunity for, I mean, at least if they're going to, how much of the dialogue from the book is going to be transposed, which, and that dialogue is written in a very, you know, affected Appalachian kind of twang sort uh-huh, of situation. Uh-huh. And I'm curious, like Rylance loves to do a weird voice and, you know, weird physical affect. And a lot of that is described in the book. So I could see that translating. I just kind of saw Sully as much older than Rylance is, but I'm sure they can. I definitely imagine Troy Kotzer. Which, like, oh, wow. sure. yeah. like yeah. it's like long hair or something. Um, You'd be fantastic. Yeah, right. This is a this is a very um, specific uh, reference, but I imagined the old man at the town hall meeting in Blazing Saddles who speaks in authentic <laughs> frontier gibberish. <laughs> Does this also mean anything work. to anybody? <laughs> Maybe that's who Mark Rylett. That's the basis of his character. You I can only know. I can only picture the beard that he's going to have. Yeah, I, it's going to be gnarled. It's going to be gnarly. I'm I'm looking at the cast list on Wikipedia, which like doesn't have a lot of characters assigned, but I'm imagining maybe Michael Stuhlbarg as like the the nurse guy. Oh, so I was thinking yeah. Andre Holland as well, the so nurse much, guy. Well, I was it, it, like I was I was thinking Andre Holland as the father, but it could be like those roles could be. Oh, either but one, that right? actually makes a lot of sense. Given. Um, Andre Holland as the as the like well-meaning nurse could be really interesting, though. That that would be fun casting. Yeah. Um, and then we got Chloe Sevigny, too. Like, there's like, it's kind of a stacked cast in a way that it, like, that I'm sort of curious. I'm like, oh, it, the script must be good because we've got a lot of really sort of fantastic actors that are involved. You David know, Gordon Mark- Green acting in it. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> um, so Chloe Sevigny, I believe, is playing the mom and is only in the very beginning, mm. uh, obviously. Um, and she but she was one of the moms on We Are Who We Are. Um, and so that, that, like, that's them pairing up again as, um, and Francesca Scorsese, who is listed on the Wikipedia for this movie was, is also a supporting character on We Are Who We Are. So this is really just an ad to watch that great underlooked show <laughs> yeah. or overlooked really show or whatever. Um, there is a still watching podcast about it if people want to listen to it as they watch. But yeah, I guess it's just him re-teaming with these people. But I think my hunch is that like 85% of the screen time is just Russell and Chalamet. Yeah, but. that would be a decent guess. Um, Richard, you bringing up I Am Love made me think about the way that food is shot in that movie. There's all these like slow close-ups with big spotlights on beautiful plates of food, which makes me wonder how much cannibalism are we going to see in this? Like, there, it's not. It's kind of like delicately described in the book, but I kind of wonder if Luke is going to go for it. I think we're going to see a lot more than we do in the book. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Are we ready for it? Well, I'm sure. very curious about the mechanics <laughs> of how she actually does this, since she does eat people. I still don't understand. <laughs> Like, does her jaw unhinge? I I know that it doesn't matter. I know that it's a fairy tale and that to be pedantic about it is like the most, I don't know, boring possible approach. But how does she do it? Yeah. In the book, it was always like, I, it happened again. I did it. And it was like, oh, okay. Like, it was like very impressionistic. We didn't get like the details. And I also, I think cinematically, I'm not a big gory person personally. It's not my favorite thing. So I could see, you know, who knows in Lucas' hands, this could be like kind of a squeamish watch, <laughs> depending on how yeah, sort of I'm nervous. visceral that is. Yeah. I'm like, I have got misgivings about it. Also, I feel like when a bear attacks like a, a hiker, and they find the hiker, like, there's still some of the hiker left, and that's a bear. Like, a teenage <laughs> child, it would take them days to eat a whole person. <laughs> like, well, I know they're sort of supposed to be supernatural, skinny, but... And she's, and she's skinny and never, like, gets bigger and is always right. hungry And they still. eat regular food, too? Hobo that's the part that and, got yeah. me, that they eat yeah. regular food as well. I thought that it would be, like, a snake who eats a mouse and then, like, a week goes by. But it's not. <laughs> like, they're just having normal meals and then also, like, a yeah. dessert of a person. <laughs> I think it was Rebecca Ford who pointed out that a lot of the Amazon reviews of this book are from like crazed Timothy Chalamet fans who are just like, I don't get it. How does she eat them? This doesn't make any sense. One star. Uh, so we're not the only ones who are yeah. hung up on this. Uh, I guess all will be revealed soon enough. Um, I just noticed also that Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross wrote the score. Yeah. Uh, so that's intriguing. And the cinematographer is someone interesting. So I don't know. I, I feel like um, a lot of our little quibbles about the book's plotting or the dialogue or whatever could be just sort of drowned out by interesting aesthetics and probably a lot more gore, which, you know, that'll that'll ha-ha, eat up some time. <laughs> I feel like they've got another film this fall, and maybe I'm just thinking of this one, but, like, I mean, those guys stay busy. 
They did the Fablemans as well. It's a really dark soundscape for <laughs> Spielberg's, <laughs> for Spielberg's <laughs> memoir piece. No, they did that. I am a little, I guess, are we going to talk about the, the call me by your name, the army, like the hammer of it all? It's just, <laughs> oh, gee. It, it's just really sort of crazy to me. Like of all the projects that Luca Guadagnino could be doing, right? That this is, of all the books, I didn't like read this book and I was like, oh, this has to be a film. <laughs> um, that's not, it didn't jump out to me as such. And then with the way that Timmy is, you know, promoting it online with his the tweets about bones and boner bones and whatnot. I just, it's hard to separate for me right now from the sort of the dark legacy of Army Hammer's involvement in Call Me By Your Name. I don't know. I was thinking about it a lot while reading it. And I was like, this is, ugh. it was, ugh. ick. I mean, I'm sure it will get commented on a lot, you know. I mean, Greta Gerwig is also a cannibal. So like, you know, but no one. <laughs> that does, that needs to be you said. Know, she gets a pass for some reason. Um, Double standard. Yeah, hopefully they've got their, their talking point prepared on that. Uh but it definitely is Luca being like, well, you think that I was going to back away from it. But no, guess what? I'm doubling down on cannibalism. <laughs> really? Uh, well, as I mentioned, Bones and All will be premiering at the Venice Film Festival on, well, Wikipedia says September 2nd. So I guess the date has been set. Um, maybe that means the Venice schedule is out and I need to go do some work. But um, <laughs> I will be reviewing it uh, from Venice. So keep an eye out for that. And, um, you know, if people want to read the book, I, 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 I would recommend it. I mean, it, it, it goes down easy. Haha. Um, <laughs> it's a quick read. Um, and I think also if you haven't read a lot of YA recently, it is a good example of YA like I said, kind of like doing the most it can without skipping over into um, so-called adult literary drama. Well, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, as ever, if you have any questions, comments, predictions, anything like that, you can reach us uh, at Little Gold Men on Twitter. Uh, you can also text us using subtext uh, at 213-513-7169. And you can find us individually. I'm at Rylaws. Uh, Katie? At Katie Rich. Rebecca? Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield 97. Little Gold Men is edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of how we're all going to be feeling at the end of the festival season goes to Katie Rich. I'm doubling down on cannibalism. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX.